Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hey, it's Max. And uh, before we get started, I got a podcast I want to tell you about. It's called The World As You'll Know It. And uh, I know that right now you're not feeling like you've got many answers to uh, what the hell this time is going to mean. But this show, The World As You'll Know It, is an attempt to try and take a long-term view on what the pandemic, what right now is going to mean for these big global issues. So there's an episode on climate change, there's an episode on the economy, on higher education, and each one, it's a five-episode series, and each one pairs a world-class journalist with an expert in that field to just try and have a conversation, to try and make sense of what this moment is going to mean Long term. The show is called The World as You'll Know It. It's supported by Aventine, a nonprofit research institute, and their aim is to invest in work that explores how today's decisions will affect the way we live, work, and experience life in the years and decades to come. And that is, of course, exactly what the show is about. It's called The World as You'll Know It, and you can find it wherever you are listening to this podcast, which starts right now. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I am your co-host Evan Ratliff. I'm here with uh, Max Linsky. Aaron is is away today. Hey, Max. Hey, Evan. Uh, hey, you've got a timely episode on the news. Rare. We don't try to get on the news because it's it's not really our thing. But it just so happens that uh, this week I talked to Barton Gelman, uh, who I've wanted to talk to for a long time. He's an investigative reporter that I really admire. He worked for the Post. For many years, he was uh, a part of, I think, three Pulitzer teams, I want to say. Uh, he's got a bunch of other awards to his name, pretty much all the awards that you can think of. He's won. He's also, he wrote a book about Dick Cheney called Angler, and he has a book out this year about his experience with the Snowden Files, which he's very well known to a lot of listeners, probably as one of the three people who was uh, given files by Edward Snowden, then published these stories in the Washington Post. And he writes about his experience of dealing with Snowden, with the files, with secrecy, with being surveilled by governments and uh, tracked and followed. 
and uh, it's all the kind of stuff that I'm most interested in. He's on the news because he had a story in The Atlantic that was on the November cover, I think. It came out a little bit early, but it's on the November cover. Uh, I think it's called The Election That Could Break America or something in that vein. He uh, wrote about what happens if Trump refuses to concede the election. So uh, indeed, it is on a lot of people's minds right now. He was, as I expected, fantastic to talk to. The uh, short version, just I, I didn't actually read that article, but it, the uh, the end is like it's totally fine, right? <laughs> <laughs> not even my dog liked that joke. Reba, Reba did not appreciate that humor. Um, well, we talk about that a little bit. It's not everything will be fine. In fact, it's that there's not much that can be done, but there are certain ways for us to all uh, act in the interest of democracy, especially people who are in positions of power. So he does write about that. Okay, so there's like uh, some silver lining. There is something you can do for democracy. And uh, there's something you can do for yourself and your potential audience. And that's start an email newsletter with MailChimp. Best way to start an email newsletter. Been supporting this show for years. They make it possible. We thank them. And now here's Evan with Barton Kelman. Bart, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you taking out the time. This is a busy time, I imagine, not least because you've got this big Atlantic story about Trump declining to concede the election, and that is very much the topic of the day on any particular day of the week. So I imagine there's a lot going on around that. Is that the case? It's been busy. That piece actually got a lot more response than I expected. Yeah. Well, I very much want to talk about it. I also want to talk about it towards the end of our conversation, because partly because I fear if we start talking about that, we will just talk about Trump-related things for this entire conversation. And there are other things that I am even more interested in talking about than the Trump situation. And part of it is sort of around Dark Mirror, because when I was reading that book, you know, I expected it to be actually mostly about Snowden, which I am very interested in Snowden. But to me... The fact that the book was actually very much about you grappling with these journalistic questions, ethical questions, questions about information, what you publish, what you don't, how you find information. It was like that part for me was like reading a thriller, like finding out how you did this stuff and how you thought about it was amazing to me. So I want to delve into that in some depth, but I would be remiss if I did not first have you recount your high school journalism experience. It's very rare that I would ask someone about their <laughs> high school journalism experience, but I feel that it is relevant and it's mentioned in the book. Can you explain <laughs> your experience as a high school reporter for the newspaper and what happened? All right. Well, everything you need to know about me in high school is that I washed out of the junior varsity gymnastics team. <laughs> so when that didn't work out, I went looking for something else to do down the hall and there was a school paper. So I joined it with about that much forethought. And I found I was kind of interested. And over the summer, I went to a program for high school seniors at Columbia Journalism School that, you know, you got to talk to real journalists and journalism professors about how you do things and what rights you had as a student to publish. And where was your hometown? I grew up in Philadelphia. This was George Washington High School in Philadelphia. Um, very large. There were like 5,000 students there. And I 
became the editor of the paper, I decided that I wanted to be uh, provocative, but uh, within the limits of what had already been litigated. So I picked the issue that was important in our school. It was a kind of a classic high school story about teenage pregnancy. And it was designed to raise the eyebrows of the authorities, I guess. But there had been a case recently in the Fourth Circuit that said that high school students could publish that kind of a story. My principal disagreed and demonstrated her disagreement by seizing all the copies of the paper and burning them. Literally, uh, and, literally burning them, like making a pyre? In an actual furnace. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, she... <laughs> and I had, I had anticipated that there could be trouble, so I actually had it printed. I sold ads over the summer and paid for a printer outside the school instead of having it done at the school shop. She just sent a goon to the print shop and said, you know, that says George Washington High School on it, and I'm the principal, those are mine. And so she did actually burn the newspaper, fired me as editor, and uh, shuttered the doors. So I, I went to uh, federal court. And you won, I think, is that right? But too late? You call it winning would be overstatement. <laughs> I, it was a good lesson for me. I mean, she understood the power dynamic. I was all full of idealism and how the First Amendment was going to smite her and I was going to stand up for my constitutional rights. And she knew that the clock was ticking and that I wasn't going to be there forever and she was going to outlast me. So uh, the school district just kept it going in court long enough that by the time we settled and I had a statement from the judge and a settlement agreement that I had the right to publish the story, I was already well into my freshman year of college. Mm. And the uh, the person she had installed as the editor in the meantime had no taste for publishing anything like that. So uh, she won in effect uh, and in practice. And I learned a pretty interesting lesson about what courts are and are not good for and about how power responds to being challenged. Did you have already a mentality about challenging authority that sort of caused you to be interested in journalism? Or did that experience actually shape your approach to people in authority keeping secrets or holding power over you and how you deal with them vis-a-vis -vis publication? So I was a classic, mild-mannered, good kid. I cared about grades. I got good grades. My teachers liked me. I, I'd have to say, just being honest, I, I wanted approval of authorities as a student, but I found that I really didn't like being told what to do in a peremptory sort of way, and I really didn't like being told to bend on a matter of principle. And so I had a decision to make. I mean, it was a fairly dramatic statement the principal had made, you know, firing me and burning the copies, and I found out that I cared. And that when put up against the wall, I, I decided I did want to fight. And that was an interesting moment of self-discovery for me and a nervous moment for my parents because they, of course, were worried that I would ruin my chances to get into college and so on. And But it comes up again and again, it feels like in your career that you continually do the type of reporting that runs up against officials who at some point you have to then contact for their comment response, and they say, don't do this, don't print this, or don't print some portion of this. You have experienced that over and over again. I have. I mean, I've had a story where 
An important source, someone I respected and liked, uh, said, if you publish that, I'll never speak to you again. And so far, 25 years later, he's kept his word. <laughs> I, But it was an important story. And I, I have found that I have a talent for uh, accidentally pissing people off. <laughs> Well, there's certain professions where that's a terrible talent, and there's certain professions where that might actually be a useful talent. Well, you know, look, I'm interested most in accountability and the use and abuse of power. So, I mean, like naturally, it's going to annoy people sometimes, and sometimes they take it like grown-ups, and sometimes less so. You also refer a couple times in Dark Mirror to your thesis at Princeton or Oxford and your study there where you were actually studying government secrecy, it made me curious, did you study the way the government operates and holds secrets and those type of issues with an eye towards becoming a journalist and writing about it? Or did that transition happen at some other point? Oh, I was always going to be a journalist. I mean, defining always by once I'd fully set my teeth in this experience in high school, I was lucky enough to find something I really liked and wanted to do and seemed like I was pretty good at. And I was deeply involved in my college paper. And then I was the editor of the college paper. And I did every summer internship with one or another news organization, National Journal and the New Republic and uh, the Miami Herald. Uh, I'd been banging on the door of the Washington Post uh, trying to get that internship. And the first year, they told me I was a finalist. And then the second year, when I'm now editor of my college paper, they tell me I'm the fucking alternate. <laughs> That's the worst. <laughs> and nobody dies. <laughs> and uh, finally, it's my first year of grad school. In that summer after the first year of grad school that I get the summer internship at the Washington Post, which was amazing and showed me kind of how it was done. So when I was doing the thesis on secrecy, I was already thinking like a journalist. And when you say they showed you how it was done, what would you say were the sort of fundamentals that you didn't have that you needed to get at the Post? To me, it was all about the reporting, about how you form relationships and how you interact with people. Uh, and I had such completely opposite sort of models. I was an intern on the national desk. And so the post internship is amazing. You can you write stories. If it's a front page story, you get a front page byline. And I'm in and among all these famous journalists. So I sat next to Don Oberdorfer, who was the long time sort of uh, just about the dean of the diplomatic correspondence. And he has a very soothing murmur and uh, kind of a calm. Uh, I mean, he looked and sounded like a diplomat. And you would hear him on the phone. And I think people didn't even notice how deep he was going with them because he did it in such a soothing manner. <laughs> Whereas I had the opposite role model in Anne Devroy, the late Anne Devroy, late great Anne Devroy, who was the White House correspondent and a huge domineering personality who would just scream at her sources. Her sources would call her every day around deadline to make sure she had what she needed. They were so afraid of her. <laughs> You know, I mean, I, I would walk by her desk and literally, in a voice that you could hear half across the newsroom, she would be singing out, Earth to Newt, 
come back here, Newt. You're off in far flat. You know, and, 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 and I would come back, you know, 30 minutes later looking for something else. And she's still on the phone with the speaker of the house, you know, getting all kinds of background details from him. And she sort of, I went to an interview with her. It was an interview of uh, Tony Lake, the national security advisor. And I actually wanted the interview myself. I was working on some piece I can't remember anymore that I needed him. But I mean, you, you didn't do an interview with a White House person without sort of cutting in and because, you know, everyone at the Post was afraid of her too. <laughs> so we went in together and I gave her the first question and she asked something and he started spinning. Uh, he started saying something familiar. She said, look, Tony, if you're just going to say the usual bullshit, let's move on to something else. I mean, and I just did grow up in a world where you talk to people like that, and I never learned to. That isn't my style. You have to, I think, take advantage of your own natural personality, and that was hers. What would you say yours became or, or was? Mine is more kind of bumbling. I feel like I'm not very methodical interviewer. I tend to circle around kind of Columbo-like and come back uh, later in the conversation to something you said earlier. I'm just making a new connection to, or I'm just realizing that I didn't understand something you said earlier. And I talk too much, I think. When I listen to my voice recordings of interviews, I really want to say, just shut up. Uh, you know, like, <laughs> let her talk, please. And I find that I interrupt too much. I mean, in fact, if it were more of a performance, which is what I regard, you know, you know, a radio or a television interview or, or a podcast interview, I would have to do it differently because it would make a terrible podcast, the way I do interviews. But I do delve into the subject and I try to signal to the person I'm interviewing that I understand your world. Um, I want to go into it in a kind of depth that you're probably not used to. I didn't come here to get a quote. I came here to learn how something actually worked or exactly what happened and how do you know it happened that way and what memorabilia of that event have you saved? Do you have your old calendar? Do you have notes that you wrote about it at the time? Do you have emails? What can we do to make more concrete your generic memory? And do you say explicitly, I'm not here for a quote? I don't say that unless the person says something that suggests that they understand reporters. They know I, I just need a quote and we'll be done in 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. I'll say we're not going to be done in 10 minutes. Uh, I mean, if you can stand it, I'll be asking you an hour from now if you could keep going. That's when we tend to have those conversations. I say, I, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to tell. I want to show. So I really want to understand how this happened. And sometimes, you know, if it's not my first interview on the subject, I take advantage of something I already know from somebody else and say, I want to understand what happened after this moment. And now I'm already taking them into a, a different world. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. 
The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly the voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docu-series, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. <laughs> I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I hate it. <laughs> I'm Abby Ayers, a 37-year-old mom from Utah who found herself running across the Manhattan Bridge in my first race ever. Running Sucks celebrates women who run and the running communities that carry them across the finish line. Running helped me in so many ways postpartum. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. For every person like you, I'm telling you you belong and I'm telling you you can do it. I never thought the words would leave my mouth, but yes, I'm planning on running a marathon. Because, like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course. And I'm always curious about I mean, the type of work that you do where you're over and over again. I mean, beginning in, you know, I was reading stories back to the early 90s, like first Gulf War up to like the Iraq War, terrorism. You're prying loose these government secrets in many cases. And the officials are very, very unhappy about it. In fact, in the book, you describe like the extent, how far they'll go in terms of being unhappy about. But and then you have to go back, maybe not to those specific people, and try and do it again and again. Like the first process is easier for me to understand than what happens in the second time you try to do it when you're already, they already know that's what you're doing, that's what you're after. And when you go back, do you find that it helps you that you've done it before, that there are people who want to get secrets out, or that you have to sort of circle around people and kind of engineer ways for them to talk to you because they know what you're after? Well, a lot of it just has to do with the subject matter. If you're covering foreign policy or national defense or intelligence or security issues in general, everything you want to know is a secret. Everything that isn't in a press conference or congressional testimony or a news release is a secret. And the overuse of classification is one of the main variables in that environment. So... I don't tell people I'm trying to get your secrets. I just say I'm trying to understand this thing that happened. I'm trying to understand, you know, what actually is the policy on Bosnia or what exactly happened in this 
firefight that I'm reconstructing or how it is that American forces tragically killed so many other American forces in the first Gulf War in episodes of Friendly Fire. I want to reconstruct these. And it just turns out that if you're writing about that or you're writing about weapons of mass destruction and the hunt for WMD in Iraq, you're going to run into things that are classified. I mean, for example, I went around with the weapons hunters in Iraq for about 30 days. And it was one punchline after another because they had, you know, an intelligence lead that this was going to be a chemical weapons factory and it turned out to be a swimming pool, you know, or um, they found a document and had it translated with emergency speed because it seemed like it was really important. It had drawings of laboratory glassware and equations and it turned out it was a uh, a high school chemistry test in Arabic. And, you know, it was a restatement of Boyle's law about the temperature and pressure of gas in an enclosed space. And the thing is, when they wrote up their report of that search that day, the report was classified secret. And as an appendix, it comes the high school chemistry test, and that's classified secret <laughs> because that's just what they do. Yeah. You know, when you report up the chain from the WMD hunting task force, you stamp it secret or above. And so Boyle's Law is now somewhere in the U.S. government, been stamped with a stamp that means that it would do serious damage to national security if this became public. Uh, and they're, you know, a couple hundred years too late on that one. Uh, but I mean, so what's it like to go back to them again? They just know that that's my beat. And they're going to see me again. They're going to hear from me again. And they know that I'm trying to get it right. And if I write a story in good faith and if it, you know, isn't always intended to make them look bad, it's just what happened, then there's a certain amount of grudging respect that comes too. Yeah, I think that was a better articulation of what I was trying to ask, which is sort of once you have a reputation for having unearthed certain secrets that people didn't want unearthed, does that reputation preceding you to people sort of help you or hurt you? And it sounds like the answer can be either. It can be either. I mean, there are people who want to know that they're talking to someone who's capable of seeing clearly what's really going on and not just swallowing the party line. And for those people, it makes me more attractive to talk to. Um, there are people who are worried primarily about controlling the message, and those people would rather talk to someone else. And you also, you gave this lecture in, um, I think, 2003, Three, I want to say it might have been 2004 at Princeton that you could find online, I think at the Neiman site, that's about government secrets, what to publish, what not to publish. You sort of say there's this uncomfortable equilibrium between government trying to keep secrets, journalists are trying to find them out. And at the time, you sort of described that balance as the best way to adjudicate these questions. And I'm curious, since that time, in all of this Snowden work and all the reporting you've done, does that thesis still hold for you? Is that still your guiding thesis in terms of that balance? This may be a sign that my thinking is stale, but to me, uh, that holds up pretty well as a statement of my beliefs about how secrecy does and should work. I mean, the idea is the government isn't competent to decide what we need to know in order to hold it accountable as the public, the sovereign public. So we can't leave all the secrecy decisions in the hands of government because you can't let them control what you know. But they do have a legitimate reason to keep something secret. And you can't 
leave it all in the hands of journalists either because we're not trained for it. We're not responsible to the public for the consequences of breaking a secret. We're not elected. And I kind of go down the list of all the institutions you might want to consider if you were looking for one omnipotent judge on secrecy. And it turns out none of them fill the role very well. And so there is an ecosystem. It's like a free market. It's government officials trying to keep secrets, reporters trying to find them out. And there's competition at the margin. And then there's also an interesting layer of cooperation at the margin because most reporters who are likely to find out interesting government secrets are also likely to go to the government and say, I know this thing. Please help me understand it in context. And implicitly, it's understood that that's the government's opportunity to say, oh, please don't publish that. Mm -hmm. So I've had lots of those conversations over the Snowden documents and over lots of things in my career before that. And they will sometimes say, don't publish any of it. And I'll say, that's not going to work. And sometimes they'll say, there's this one detail that we really care about. And I'll say, why? And when the conversation works well, uh, there are times when the government will tell me something that I don't know off the record to explain to me why something I do know is dangerous to publish. And sometimes that's very effective. Sometimes there's something that just, it never occurred to me. Oh, well, in that case, <laughs> no, I wouldn't want to publish that. So I can't give all the examples as clearly as I'd like to, but here's one. In the Snowden documents, we found evidence that a certain kind of surveillance had been good for uh, listening in on, on terrorists and uh, people planning terrorist attacks. And we came up with four names in these files, me and a researcher named Julie Tate. And I went to the CIA in this case and said, we're thinking of publishing these four names. These are, these are four people who are already three cases, they're dead, and one of them is in U.S. custody. So they're no longer live threats. We can't be blowing any current operations against them. So why shouldn't we publish their names as having been surveillance targets? And they said, we don't care about these two names, but these other two names, if you were to publish them, it would become evident to others in their network that that particular channel they were using is compromised. And it would defeat ongoing operations against their partners. And that was very persuasive to me. I did not want to write stories that would blow ongoing operations. So I wanted to understand the boundary of secret intelligence in a free society. I wanted the policy decision to be debated openly. I wasn't out there to try to stop surveillance from happening. So I ran the two names and I kept out the two names. Well, that feels like where it gets into just incredibly tricky judgment calls because part of the premise of even publishing these stories in general is that the government has been trying to keep these secrets, has maybe even in some cases been deceiving about their capabilities. And so now you're you're one-on-one -on -one with whoever this person is, this representative, this person at the CIA, and they're telling you off the record, honestly, this is going to cause this problem. But then how do you decide whether to believe that explanation? You have to have confidence in that moment that they are telling you the truth or some way to report it out, which I assume you don't. Yeah, I can't always do that. Um, there are times when I have let the bare assertion stand because the consequences, I mean, if they tell me that if you report this operation, you're going to be putting a particular person in physical jeopardy because he's still in country operating this equipment. And we need, if you're going to publish this, we need two weeks notice to get him out. 
I can't prove that. I don't know that that's a fact. But I have relationships with some of the people on the other end of the conversation who I trust enough not to uh, make something like that up. I mean, that would be such a grotesque breach to invent that. I'm not saying that nobody is capable of it, but it would certainly be a deal breaker forever And I, if someone lied to me about something like that. And I have occasionally threatened people when I was less confident and said that I just want you to know that as far as I'm concerned, lies are on the record. So this conversation is off the record. But if I ever find out that you've deliberately steered me wrong on this, I'm going to consider myself free to publish that. And have you ever had to make good on that? I've never done it. And it's a complicated thing to do. But I meant it when I said it, or at least I thought I did. So you describe in detail in the book how Snowden first came to you or how you first came in contact with Snowden. And the interesting thing to me is that part of it seems to be that you already had this reputation as someone who understood and cared about encryption, about secrecy, that you were sort of technically minded. And I'm curious how that came about. What was the impulse that led you over the years to be a person who started to consider that aspect of your reporting, how to keep your own secrets, basically? First of all, I was sort of disposed to it in the sense that I like tech. I like figuring out gadgets that can help me or software that can help me. And uh, I'm comfortable playing with those kinds of things. And I started to become more and more concerned about keeping uh, confidential notes confidential. I wasn't a sophisticated thinker about it. It's just that I was working in a system in which, you know, I was typing notes on uh, a machine that was connected to a network and everything was in the clear. Um, it could be read by other people. I was using sort of childish measures, I thought at the time, to keep the names confidential. So I would give them, you know, this would be source purple. You know, but I mean, if you read all of Purple's notes, you could tell who it was because there are enough identifying details eventually in the conversation. And it just didn't seem uh, very safe to me. And there came a moment when Scooter Libby was on trial. He was the chief of staff to Vice President Cheney. And he was uh, on trial for uh, obstruction of justice and lying to law enforcement about contacts with reporters. And there was a lot of pressure put on the reporters to testify. And Time Magazine turned over the notes that belonged to Matthew Cooper, the Time correspondent, over his objections. So prosecutors said, give me your notes. Cooper said no. Time said yes and turned them over. And I looked at that and said, I didn't ever want to be in that position. So from that time, roughly, I started encrypting all my notes. And so I had to go find out how you do that. And uh, that takes you down a rabbit hole because there are all sorts of methods and techniques, and, and there, there were no easy tools. Yeah. Back in the old days of, you know, the early 2000s, there were no easy tools for doing this sort of stuff. I mean, today, post-Snowden and because of Snowden, it is much easier to get very good security. I mean, if you want to send encrypted messages, use Signal. Yeah. Signal really works, and it really is highly secure. But, you know, I was using, you know, command line, PGP, and all kinds of other... I'd say fancy, but really it was just geeky kinds of tools that were not easy. And were you an evangelist for it? Were you trying to get other reporters to to see the light when it came to protecting their own their own information? I did where I could. I mean, I would sort of drop hints or say, you know, like, I mean, I can 
tell you how to scramble up your notes on that. I mean, like somebody lost a laptop in circumstances that were a little bit murky, like it was actually taken out of the trunk of a cab when she was heading for a known speaking engagement and she was doing a lot of spooky secret reporting at the time. And she was a little suspicious that it had been taken sort of in a targeted way. I said, I mean, I can teach you encryption if you want. And I had, I had taught several people how to do that or use tools of anonymity so that you could communicate without your um, identity being known, which is actually sometimes more important than encryption when it comes to source protection. Mm-hmm. Who's talking to who is actually the secret, not what they're saying. I taught Laura Poitras, the filmmaker. She was being stopped every time she came back in the country. Uh, she was on some kind of a special targeted list and they would search her belongings. They would uh, copy her electronic media. They would uh, image her computer. And she came to me and said, I hear you know how to do encryption. Can you teach me? Because uh, this is getting old, this stuff at the border. And I did teach her. And then it turned out that you know she was the first person that Snowden communicated with and she recommended that he talk to me as well. And you describe a bit your your sort of initial skepticism. And I can't remember if this is in the book or not, but it just occurs to me like with the type of work you do, you must hear from a fair number of just absolute cranks uh, <laughs> over the years who have all sorts of stories for you. So was what was your initial reaction when she – I mean, obviously, she's a serious person. She's an award-winning filmmaker. But what was your thinking when – she first brought this idea to you. Yeah, I mean, if you've been on a national security beat for any length of time at all, there's a risk of being jaded and cynical. And and someone says, you know, I've got a secret source with a big intelligence scandal. And it's like, oh, no, not that again. Because there are a lot of fake sources and fake scandals and a lot of really disturbed people in sad cases uh, who, who really do think that Someone is torturing them with radio waves in their teeth, or they're just zealots about one thing or another. The idea that you have someone just arriving randomly in your email inbox with a really big story, it just almost, almost never happens. I think I can say it had never happened to me quite that way. But this source, who is anonymous and called himself Virax, that was Snowden's anonymous handle at the time. He sounded just plausible enough. There wasn't anything in the first message that made you want to throw away the second one. And the second one left just enough questions that you wanted to read the third one. And we got into a kind of dialogue back and forth in which he was trying to decide whether he could trust me to tell the truth if he gave it to me. And I was trying to figure out whether he really knew what he was talking about, whether the materials he was going to give me were authentic. Who the hell was he? Um, what were his real motives? And so on. And we did a lot of talking about a story without talking about the story. That is to say, he was fixing to give Laura and me a very important document, he said, but he hadn't showed us the document. We were talking about when the document comes, how will we know it's real? And we expended probably tens of thousands of words on this exchange back and forth before I saw the first document from Snowden. Did you lose faith in that time period that maybe this guy was just going to disappear or just string you along and never produce the document? By about halfway through, I was convinced that it was real and that I just had to do some more due diligence 
but I, I believed I was going to conclude that this guy was for real. His answers were very good. Um, I asked him obscure things that I happened to know because they were out on the edge of some story I'd already done. I had done a book on Dick Cheney and had a couple of chapters on warrantless electronic surveillance. And in the course of doing that reporting, I learned some technical facts that never made it into my book because they weren't pertinent or I didn't really want to bother having to explain all the technical crap in a book that was focused on something else. But I knew it. So if he knew what I knew, I thought that would be a good sign that he was actually an insider. If he could fill in a blank for me, that was a good sign. If he was willing to say, I don't know, that was also a good sign. You know, he sort of passed all those tests. I, by the time the document arrived, I was pretty confident it was going to be real. One thing I, I had not known at all was, uh, or it realized, I guess, was that you were not at the post at that time. I mean, you see the stories in the post, and I just assumed you had already returned to the post before this all happened. But now reading the chain of events, you say something like, I had left the post unhappily previously. So what, what were the circumstances around which you departed the Washington Post? So I left in 2010. The newsroom was, it was the common story of declining resources um, and shrinking numbers and layoffs and buyouts. And, you know, morale was uh, not doing so well. And I was working for the first time for an editor, the editor of the paper, who I didn't have the same confidence in that I'd had in his predecessors. I felt like... Um, I couldn't fully trust his word, and I wasn't sure what he stood for, and I wasn't sure the Post still wanted what I had to offer, which was long-term projects, because I don't turn around projects quickly. I, for the last 10 years of the paper, I had done you know an average of maybe two a year, mm -hmm. and some were longer than average. <laughs> <laughs> so... They had to be in it for the long haul, and I wasn't sure they were. So I, I decided to leave and freelance and work on a book. So then fast forward, you have dropped in your lap what you know is a huge story, but you're a freelancer. You had some attachment to Time magazine, I guess. Explain how you resolved that issue of what do you do with this story when you're not inside an institution that has a clear path to take it on? Right. Well, so one day I received one document that is the most highly classified thing I've ever seen and is a big story. The next day, unexpectedly, unplanned, I receive 50,000 more documents, also classified at this crazy high level, and I'm overwhelmed by it. And I'm also aware that there are significant legal risks for someone in my position, that significant government pressure could be brought to bear, uh, that I'm going to be the target for a lot of foreign intelligence agencies and hackers, that there are going to be some really hard questions about what should be published, even in an ideal world, uh, that I'm going to have to authenticate all this material, at least any part of it that I write about. So there are lots of resources and, and liability and other problems that I'm facing, and I know I need a big news organization behind me. And I was associated as a contributing editor at large at Time Magazine at the time. I liked the at-large part. It made me feel like a fugitive. But I was not on staff. I was a contractor. And time management on the business side did not have any appetite for a controversial, classified kind of reporting assignment. And I quickly found that that was not going to be the place to go. 
And I thought honestly about going to the New York Times. I live in New York and it seemed logical at one level. And, you know, I knew the editor. I could have gone and had that conversation. But this was such a complicated story um, and had so many sort of equities to protect that I worried I didn't understand the Times well enough to navigate it, that the level of mutual trust that was required was going to be very high. And I still knew the people at the Post. And, you know, the editor who I hadn't especially loved had moved on. And there was a new guy, Marty Barron, who had a great reputation. And I decided to take a chance and go back to the paper I had spent 20, 21 years at. And I went back and asked for a very different sort of working relationship than I'd had before. And part of that relationship was just securing the materials and securing the reporting process and all of the steps that it took to do that and convince them to do it in the right way. But again, was that a situation where you figured out all that stuff by yourself or you hired someone to say, okay, I'm facing possibly some of the greatest threats imaginable when it comes to pursuing my digital information? How did you figure out how to develop these layers of security in order to try and keep the information safe? Well, the timing was lucky in some ways. I mean, I, I had uh, grown into what might reasonably be called a kind of obsessive concern about uh, digital security. I mean, every time I thought I'd closed the door, I realized I'd left another one open. Um, and I was reading in these obscure kind of security websites and talking to experts in uh, communication security and operational security. And I found it sort of an interesting puzzle and I was putting more and more layers of uh, security on my own work already. And I was just about to write a cover story for Time Magazine about how I had fallen into this ridiculous rabbit hole and had to come back out again because I had built this little padded room where nobody else <laughs> was coming to visit. I mean, that's no way to be a journalist, right? I mean, I, I had built this very highly secure way of getting in touch and no one was getting in touch that way. But then comes Snowden. And he's using all that. He's using the, the anonymous relays and the encryption and the jabber chat and, you know, all this other stuff. And I realized that knowing how to do that was a big advantage. And once I actually had the material, I realized it was going to be a target. So by this time, I had the benefit of advice from world-class security experts. And I asked for more. And Snowden himself gave me some tips about how to take care of the materials. It was in both of our interests that the original raw files not be obtained by any outside actor and not be published on the internet. Uh, he didn't want it and I didn't want it. So since I knew that sophisticated adversaries were going to try to go after it, I built layers of security. So there's a physical safe in which you put a computer that has been stripped of its communications gear. So the networking hardware the Wi-Fi, the Ethernet, that's all been removed physically from the computer. The information on the hard drive is encrypted. Uh, the encryption key is kept on a separate physical key that's not stored in the same safe as the computer. The safe is in a room that has better than average door and door lock and video security. I went into the Washington Post after having been gone for three years, and I asked them to build all this and said that I was not going to share the whole archive with anybody at the paper. I was going to pull out pieces that I thought were newsworthy and interesting and then look for collaborators in the newsroom who could 
do the story or help with the story. And that Marty was going to have to decide whether that was okay with him because I didn't feel comfortable doing it another way. I mean, once I looked at some of the material in the documents and decided that there was no way that they should be published, I mean, if you have photos of U.S. clandestine personnel in the field in a place where no one knows they're operating, just like that's a no. There's no reason to publish that. Lots of reason not to. So once I decided there's stuff in there that no one should see, then I felt like I was obliged to keep it from my reporting colleagues as well. Like I, there's no reason to add more secret holders to the list. And I wasn't sure everybody was going to be quite as zealous about the security measures as I was anyway. So much of the question that you're dealing with in the book is what to publish and what not to publish and how to confirm information that's so classified that you can't go put it in front of someone. And what's the guiding philosophy behind how you go and make those decisions and confirm what you can confirm? So I'm talking to sources and government officials and private sector people uh, in order to understand it technically and operationally. And I'm thinking about what are the stakes here? So I mean, if it is a program that is collecting all the phone calls of all Americans and sorting through them and creating networks and databases of who's talking to who in America. This is the citizens of the government that's doing this in secret. And if you're lying about it, that's a pretty easy call. That's a story. So, I mean, if it implicated the privacy of Americans, I privileged that as a story above spying on foreigners because spying on foreigners is what you expect a spy agency to do. And foreigners have a different relationship with our government than we do. And if there were sort of big public policy questions or boundary questions, you know, should they be allowed to do this or that? That seemed important to me. If it was, here's just for the sake of saying it, the technology they're using, or here's a thing they could do that nobody knows they can do. And now that you say they could do it, then it won't be as useful anymore. I mean, that you know... There were some easy calls on the other side. There were some hard ones where there was an important public policy question, but there really were stakes for the operation itself. I mean, I decided that it can't be enough to stop a story that you would do some damage to intelligence collection, that that by itself is not enough reason to say that there can't ever be a story under any circumstances about that thing. That's just, it's one thing to balance because it could be that the public policy benefit of transparency is as great or greater. Or it could be that damage happens uh, for reasons you wouldn't want to regard as overriding in their importance. I mm-hmm. mean, they didn't want me to publish the names of the American companies that cooperated with the PRISM program under which they got all the internet data from any of you know hundreds of thousands of accounts. And I said, why? And they said, because the companies would not want to cooperate with us anymore if you expose them. And I said, if the damage is that the people of the country or the consumers in the market won't like what the company's doing and the company will therefore feel like it needs to stop doing it, then that's not a reason not to publish. That's a reason to publish. That's a feature, not a bug. That's the system working the way it's supposed to work, uh, is being responsive to voters or being responsive to consumers. So, I mean, is it damage to national security that because I reported that the government was breaking into Google Cloud, 
uh, that Google now encrypts those links that were being broken into. It means that they can't collect as freely that way anymore, but it means that they can't just reach in and grab whatever they want that belongs to Americans. I have no problem with that decision. That wasn't a hard one, but there were hard ones. But you were also dealing at the same time with a source, Snowden himself, who had a different outlook on what you should and shouldn't publish and his own ideas about what you should put out there. And there's interesting things in the book about how he wanted you to sort of publish more speculative aspects of the documents and see what came back and see if that could sort of gin up a response that would maybe confirm them in some way. And so how did you balance what he wanted, you know, the source that you had to sort of keep on the hook to a certain extent, while at the same time trying to maintain your your own standards for what you were after? How did you strike that balance? That wasn't a hard one. Snowden, I mean, I wasn't negotiating with Snowden about what I would publish. Uh, the only thing I was negotiating with him about was what he would tell me, and that was about him. I wanted to know more about him. I wanted him to go from source to subject. I wanted him to be someone I would write about for the book. And he was extremely reluctant to do that. Um, he didn't like talking about himself. He didn't like talking about his private life. He didn't want the story to be about him. He wanted it to be about the surveillance. And so I was talking to him about the coverage, but I didn't feel pressured. If he told me, you, sh you have to publish a story about this or you can't publish a story about that, he, he really didn't, actually. Um, he would sometimes offer opinions, but he deferred. I mean, his, his whole shtick was that he was going to make this stuff available to reporters so that we could decide what was newsworthy and what was harmful. And he really did stick to that almost always. There were times, I mean, his outlook was different from mine. I knew that. And we had sort of hypothetical arguments about it. But then wasn't his part of his outlook what caused him to eventually give the documents also to Glenn Greenwald? Yeah, well, there was one clash at the beginning where, I mean, he wanted me to guarantee that I would publish a document and then a cryptographic signature that would prove the document came from him. He was doing that because his name was not yet public. He was still in hiding. He was looking for asylum. He intended to follow my story by going into various embassies around Hong Kong and say, I'm the source of this Washington Post story and I can prove it because here's the cryptographic signature for that document. And I, through a variety of, you know, computer mumbo jumbo can prove that I'm the owner of that signature. And I refused to do that because, first of all, and less importantly, I wasn't going to publish the entire PRISM document because there were things in it that I thought shouldn't be published. And second of all, publishing the cryptographic signature was not a reader service. That was nothing that informed my reader of anything. It was purely for the purposes of him using it to try to seek asylum. Mm -hmm. It was trying to make me an instrument of his flight from U.S. jurisdiction. And that didn't feel like appropriately my role. And that was the moment when he, when he went to Greenwald. And when you, when you write about the sort of subsequent, you know, there was a bit of public back and forth with Greenwald about your different approaches and, and who did what. And I, we probably don't have time to go into that in detail, but you seem sort of simultaneously relatively sanguine about it now, but also I detected an underlying irritation that still was there. I might be reading between the lines, but I'm curious what you're like when you first found out that someone else was going to have access to the documents, what your reaction was. I was disappointed uh, because I wanted it to be exclusive if I could. 
And I was also fairly comfortable that there were going to be kinds of stories in there that would, you know, sort of be in my wheelhouse and not necessarily in somebody else's. I felt like I could find exclusives even if somebody else had the same pile. The, 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 the thing Greenwald was just, uh, you know, his need to uh, maintain publicly that, you know, he was in it from the beginning, that he was the only one with the nerve to take on the government, that uh, only Glenn Greenwald um, had the courage and the fortitude and the willingness to be uh, in counterpoint to government power. And I just got tired of the rhetoric. Also, I mean, you discover in the Snowden documents that you've been referred for criminal prosecution in the past for stories that you've done. And then obviously there's all sorts of legal threats hanging over, potential legal threats hanging over your work around the Snowden documents. And I was interested in what kind of sort of personal toll that takes on you. Do you, is that something that you try and just completely set aside? Is that something that you make sort of contingencies for if I get arrested, if they show up, if there's a raid, you know, how much does that affect your life, the knowledge that that is out there? I found that thinking about things like that too much wasn't good for me. <laughs> uh, it's in the category of things you don't have much control over. Um, I should correct. I was not referred for prosecution. My stories were referred for criminal investigation, right, okay. and the prosecution would be much more likely to have been of my sources than of me. There is always an available theory of prosecution under which the journalist can be prosecuted under the Espionage Act. Uh, the U.S. government, at the time I was doing the Snowden story, had never tried that. They're trying it now with Julian mm -hmm. Assange. Three counts of his indictment charge him with violating the Espionage Act for the act of publishing. That by publishing something that he knew was classified, he had violated the Espionage Act. That's never been done before. It's a terrible precedent. Uh, and it doesn't matter whether you think that Julian Assange is or isn't, quote unquote, a journalist. If he could be prosecuted for this, then certainly I can, and any military or diplomatic correspondent can be because of the nature of the charge. And I, I, hope, that, I hope that that prosecution falls apart. It would be a really bad precedent. And do you feel like you, if that prosecution succeeds, you could be in legal jeopardy because you could be retroactively now prosecuted for, I don't know what the statute of limitations is, would be on that, but. Uh, hypothetically, <laughs> I guess I could be. Uh, that's a cheery thought. Uh, I'm much more concerned about protecting my sources. I mean, in this country, we have not had to contend with uh, journalists being prosecuted. Um, we have seldom, but occasionally had to contend with journalists being jailed in an effort at civil compulsion, so testify or else. And the trend line is not looking great right now. I mean, I found in a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit that the FBI uh, was withholding some documents about me on grounds that revealing them would make public secret methods of surveillance that the public didn't know about. They were documents about me. So that was not reassuring either. And I found that I got to a level of I could dignify it by saying vigilance, but I'd say it's probably more accurately paranoia that was interfering with my life. It, you know, I mean, I, I even now with somewhat less stringent controls, you know, it still takes me five long passphrases to start work in the morning. And there was a long time when I would not allow my computer or my digital devices to be out of my physical control unless they were 
with someone I knew and trusted to have kind of continuous awareness of them. I mean, it just interfered with my everyday life and my family life. And I did worry a lot, especially at the beginning when I couldn't talk even to my partner, Daphna, because I was afraid of blowing lawyer-client privilege. Mm -hmm. So it was stressful. Well, in a strange way, I feel like that brings us to Trump, because one of the things that's fascinating in the book is that, of course, the same characters at the NSA and elsewhere who refer to you as a quote-unquote accomplice of Snowden or sort of offhandedly refer to you as an agent as opposed to a journalist, a lot of these same people became these sort of anti-Trump people in the current administration who are sort of out there saying, we need to fight back. And they're sort of lauded by journalists for that. And they're on all the morning shows and everything else. And I'm curious, you do ask some of them, like, have you talked to them about how they might have changed their views towards you now that Trump is the president and now that they seem to be afraid of how the government's power might be wielded in secret? Yes, I have all these interviews in the book, uh, and I recreate these scenes of conversations with people like James Clapper, who was the director of national intelligence. And he was one of the people who had called me an accomplice of Snowden, which has legal meaning and not helpful to me. Uh, And he said that in testimony before the Senate that was in his formal testimony with the pre-written remarks. And I found it quite daunting, to be honest. And here I am sitting down and he's eating his egg white omelet and uh, chatting with me about it. And he is now a member of the fake news media himself (laughs) as a guy who appears on cable news and has written a book and is willing to talk to me sort of philosophically about how he saw my role as a journalist in the Snowden story, but also how he saw the work of the career civil servants and the journalists as being aligned in new ways under Trump. I mean, it wasn't he, but somebody else who was of a comparable rank said to me that this is a national emergency, that the Trump is a national emergency, and that we're all first responders. You are, and I am. And so suddenly I found myself with a kind of an associate membership card of the deep state. <laughs> and uh, there was understood to be kind of an alliance of interests in holding him accountable. And where did the idea for the story about Trump not conceding the election, where did that emerge from? Was that, you talked a long time ago about sort of hypothesis-driven reporting that you do. Was that a hypothesis that came to you and you thought, I'll pursue it? Or did someone bring that to you? Or was it in, just sort of in the air? I started with something that, I mean, there were a lot of stories that kept saying, you know, that Trump won't promise to respect the election outcome. Uh, there were a lot of quotes from him. And I just decided to th- start thinking about what are the consequences if you take seriously the idea that this is a man who will never concede defeat in the election. If you take it as a certitude, this guy will not concede. Uh, Well, it turns out that concession is the way we end presidential elections. That's the way we almost always have ended them. Without a concession from the loser, uh, it becomes much harder to tell when the end point is. And I decided to just sort of follow that along with my reporting. What happens if someone keeps on fighting, even though the state has been called, even the count is going a certain way uh, in this county, in this state? What are the mechanisms in the Electoral College that Trump could mess with? And it turned out that a sufficiently determined president who was 
unbounded by any kind of norms and willing to take the whole system down with him, there's a lot he could do. Uh, and some of it I established he was already thinking about mm -hmm. doing. And so that's what turned it from a conjectural essay into a reported story. And did you view it sort of as a as more of a call to action? I mean, there is a section towards the end that sort of here's what you can do. And you're speaking directly to civil servants or people in the national security apparatus. Was that your goal to talk to those people and send them that message? You know, this thing evolved as I wrote it, and it evolved sort of organically. I did not set out to write a call for action. And in fact, in my first draft, I mean, one of the only major changes in the piece from the time I wrote it to the time it got through the remarkably good editing process at The Atlantic, which I love, is that one of the editors said, this piece makes me want to jump off a bridge. And you've got to leave us with something. I mean, what are we supposed to do with this? What are we supposed to do about this? And there came the idea that I should speak directly to readers and say, there are things you can do. And that seemed very strange and alien to me. It was nothing like I'd ever done before. I, I don't do that. I don't advise readers. But the whole voice of this piece, it's my first piece written, my first major piece for The Atlantic itself. Uh, and I have the freedom there to write with a lot of voice. And I just found myself taking advantage of it. This is a unique moment and a uniquely threatening environment for a free election. And I didn't want to treat it as normal. And so my writing wasn't normal. That was one of the things that really grabbed me about it. One of the, the sort of signature features of it is you saying, you know, let's not pretend. Trump will not concede. We have the evidence we need to say that and let's operate from that premise, which strikes me as something that you never could have written at the Washington Post. No, I really couldn't have. And I wanted to nail that down absolutely near the front of the piece. Say, I'm, I'm going to take you from here. We're going to start with this proposition that he will not concede, period, because it's important, because it has big consequences. So let me just nail it for you. It's not a maybe. Even though it's theoretically written in the future conditional, you know, if he loses, he won't concede. There's nothing conditional about it. And there's opinion in that and analysis. And I know I couldn't have written that in the post. I mean, I could have written it, I suppose, in an Outlook piece, but an Outlook piece wasn't going to give me 10,000 words either. <laughs> so I feel very, very lucky to be uh, to have landed at a place that once worked like this. But it also, it puts you in that realm, which I've never seen in any of your other work, of sort of, there's a prediction in there too. There's a bit of predictive political journalism mm -hmm. in there. So then the question becomes, are you comfortable with that being wrong. Like if it turns out that uh, Trump loses and then concedes instantly, the piece will be wrong. But how will you feel about that? Uh, there's nothing I'd rather be wrong about. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I am genuinely alarmed by what's going on now and by the prospect of serious chaos in the aftermath of election day. And if it all goes reasonably smoothly, I'll be quite relieved as a citizen and perfectly happy to eat crow. All right. Last question. The piece is also, as we were saying at the very beginning, it's gotten you know sucked up into the national dialogue around this question, a question that comes up at every debate, a question that comes up every day in the news. You know, Will Trump concede? Will Trump commit to a peaceful transfer of power? And I know you've had plenty of stories that have, have gotten into the national conversation like that. But I'm wondering how that feels in this moment to be part of that. Is that 
Is it overwhelming? Is it gratifying? What, what's the feeling when something gets played up this big and it's this central to what a lot of people would say is the future of the country? So I've had more impact with this piece unexpectedly to me uh, than almost anything I've ever done. It's been talked about everywhere and I've you know, done a lot of TV and radio and podcasts and I didn't expect that because I just didn't really know what I had in this piece and I think it, there was a big element of luck to it. I'm actually thrilled by it. I'm quite gratified. I'm not going to pretend otherwise. I, I spent the first three years of the Trump presidency on the outside looking in uh, as a cons news consumer. I couldn't take my eyes off the story and I felt it was the most important thing in the world, what he was doing to the country. And I was busy writing essentially a history with the Snowden book. And the first chance I got, I just wanted to get at this biggest story of our time, this president and what he's done to the country. And I was thrilled to have this as my subject and thrilled to see some impact of what it did. Well, uh, well, let's hope you're wrong, though. I, I'm sorry to say. Amen to that. <laughs> well, Bart, thank you so much. I, I really, really appreciate it. Take care. It's been a great conversation. That's it for this week's long form podcast. I'm your co-host Evan Ratliff. Thank you to Bart Gelman for coming on the show. Uh, his book is called Dark Mirror. It's uh, still out in stores now. And thanks to my co-hosts Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer, to our editor Janelle Pfeiffer, to our intern Susan Peterson, and as always our sponsor Mailchimp. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Support for Longform this week came from listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.